shut in in theaters tomorrow. You hear about the storm coming in? You probably shouldn't be up there all alone. My son, he's sick. I can't really move him. The only thing scarier than being alone. I keep hearing sounds, and it's not just in my head. Is realizing. You're talking about ghosts. You are not. I have to get out of here. Naomi Watts. Run! Run! Shut in. Rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters tomorrow. Olson, welcome to the Lineup Podcast. With me, as always, is Dr. Clarissa Cole, forensic psychologist. In this episode, we dig into the inscrutable mystery within an enigma that is the Winchester Mystery House. Would you please give us some background, Clarissa? Gladly. So, Sarah Lockwood Pardee was born the fifth of seven children to Leonard Pardee and Sarah Burns. While one can speculate on her exact date of birth, it actually isn't certain. All that's known for sure is that it was between 1835 and 1845. And though records are sparse, it's documented that Sarah was born to a normal upper middle class New Haven family. Yet Sarah herself was anything but ordinary. By age 12, she was fluent in Latin, French, Spanish, and Italian. She was also remarkably talented as a musician and knowledgeable in literature, including Homer and Shakespeare. By her early adulthood, she'd become known as the Belle of New Haven. While this may have seemed out of place for Sarah's less-than-elite social strata, her father had been busy, too. Originally a joiner by trade, Leonard was able to move up the social ladder due to a great business sense. By the time Sarah was coming of age, he'd become a successful carriage manufacturer and subsequently made a small fortune supplying ambulances to the Union Army during the Civil War. But while her father was involved in the business of saving lives, Sarah's future husband, William Winchester, was involved in taking them. William Wirt Winchester was born in 1837 to Oliver and Jane Winchester, unassuming clothing manufacturers in New Haven. But like Sarah's father, the Winchester patriarch had grander ambitions. Gradually, Oliver began channeling his energy into a firearms manufacturing venture. It would eventually become the massively successful Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Since both families were from New Haven, it was natural that Sarah and William would run in the same social circles. Thus, in September of 1862, the two were married. Little is known about their marriage, other than that it seems they loved each other deeply and seemed reasonably happy. Then in 1866, tragedy struck. Annie Pardee Winchester, the couple's only child, died a mere 40 days after her birth from something called marasmus. Good grief. What is marasmus? Well, that was a tough one. It's, I, you know, I looked it up because I'd heard of it briefly, but it is kind of a catch-all term. It's, it's considered a wasting disease that's characterized by severe malnutrition. So it's not uncommon to see it in undeveloped countries where like the water is bad, the food is scarce, disease is really prevalent. But a case of marasmus can generally be cured by IV fluids and food being introduced slowly back into the diet. So how is it possible that Annie, a child born into wealth and privilege, died of marasmus? So, I, you know, I really looked into it, and my guess is that she didn't. 
the term Erasmus is very general and it's used in, you know, the mid 1800s. It's probably used to characterize a large array of diseases that gave the characteristics of wasting away of the body leading to death. So if I had to hypothesize a more likely cause, I'd say that it was probably something called phenylketonuria, which is also called Folling's disease. It's an inherited disorder that occurs when patients are missing an enzyme that's needed to process a protein called phenylalanine. So as a result, phenylalanine builds up in the body and without proper treatment, the condition can be fatal. P patients with PKU, it has to, they follow a diet that doesn't contain any phenylalanine and it's present in high protein foods like cheese, milk, nuts, meats. And while breast milk has a lower amount of phenylalanine than cow's milk or formula, it's still present. PKU wasn't officially discovered until 1934. But now we test at birth for PKU. It's standard in all developed countries. That means even though William and Sarah's infant may have been feeding normally, she could have wasted away before their eyes. Well, that is tragic indeed. And it just shows you how lucky we are to live in the era that we do. I remember PKU tests for all my children. I thought, oh, I recognize those three letters. I remember taking that test, or <laughs> I didn't, but they did. So yes, very unfortunate that, um, that that occurred to her. The death of their daughter must have been very hard on them. They did not have any more children. But William and Sarah pressed on until 1880 when another blow hit the death of William's father, Oliver. Then, quite unexpectedly, William himself succumbed to tuberculosis less than one year later at the age of just 43. This sent Sarah into a tailspin though she was now one of the wealthiest women in the world with an inheritance of $20 million, and these are in $1880, plus nearly 50% of the Winchester Arms stock, which in turn earned her approximately $1,000 a day in royalties for the rest of her life. I wouldn't mind having $1,000 a day. <laughs> I hear you there. A uh, hundred and twenty some years, 140 some years later, so, wow, imagine what that kind of money was back then. But Sarah, despite the wealth, just didn't know how to cope. She ran away to Europe for the next three years. It's unknown exactly what she did there, as no records exist. But many think she got deeply involved with Freemasonry. Wait a minute. Okay, Sarah Winchester was a woman. Would a society like the Freemasons have let her just come on in? Well, that, of course, is the question. But there was a movement in France called co-masonry, co-freemasonry, that was underway when Sarah arrived in that country, which allowed for male and female membership together. Let's back up, though. What is Freemasonry? It's the world's oldest and largest fraternity, in a nutshell. Its membership is a who's who of world history. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Winston Churchill, Mozart, Davy Crockett, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Houdini, Gerald Ford, Henry Ford, John Wayne, Colonel Sanders, and, <laughs> and 13 of the 39 signers of the American Constitution were Masons. Freemasonry began in medieval Europe as a guild, literally, for stonemasons. The first written reference is from a poem published in 1390. But soon the group morphed into a social and philosophical organization as well. The first Grand Lodge was created in London 
1717. Over time, there were many men in these lodges who were not stonecutters or tradesmen. They were gentlemen masons, and that became the norm over time. All these men from different neighborhoods, different professions, meeting in a cafe, breaking bread together, performing rituals. What could this be? So that was the response of, on the part of the authorities. They said, this must be a conspiracy. By 1738, Pope Clement XII issued the Catholic Church's first decree against Freemasonry, and it still applies today. The Masons espouse the values of the Enlightenment, the dignity of man, and the liberty of the individual, the right of all persons to worship as they choose, the formation of democratic governments, and the importance of public education. And if you think about it, especially in the Middle Ages, that was some pretty threatening stuff. No, it's threatening now. That it, is unbelievable. It really, it really, really is. The dignity of man, the rights of the individual, liberty of the individual. It's pretty amazing stuff. In America, Masons were very influential. By 1826, it was estimated that half of all the public offices in New York State were held by Masons. Half. This led to suspicion, conspiracy theories, and even the rise of the anti-Masonic party, an actual political party, <laughs> which won seats in the U.S. House of Representatives and eventually morphed into the Whigs, which eventually morphed into the Republican Party. Yeah. Wow. That is a fa I did not know that. That it, is a fascinating history. It really is. It's interesting stuff. And that, that anti-Mason star party started in New York State, where there was such a prevalence of Masons in public office. If you want to... Freemasonry is like, that. Is that incorporated into the dollar bill? Am I right about that? Uh, it's, the symbol is similar, but it's okay. not dependent. It's not derived from it. The symbols used in Masonry and the symbols used on the dollar are simply derived from similar sources. Okay. At least that's my opinion. There are certainly those who feel much more conspiratorial about it and do <laughs> think that it comes from Masonry and that the Masons are connected to the Illuminati and so on and so forth, and it all ends up with reptilians in government. But I don't go in that <laughs> direction, my friends. I think the Masons are just basically the world's oldest fraternity, essentially. If you want to be a Mason, you can petition a local lodge for membership. You'll need to demonstrate good character and belief in some sort of supreme being. Though, within the Masons, you cannot talk about religion per se or politics. Damn good idea. <laughs> for every family gathering. Oh my, out oh well. my. For every gathering, especially at this particular <laughs> time, shall uh, we say, in American history. Could not agree more. In almost all the lodges, though, even to this day, it is still men only. Today, Freemasonry has about 1.3 million members in the U.S., down from 4 million at peak in 1959. Wow. Well, I mean, that, that theory is really intriguing, uh, especially given the, you know, the time period that we're talking about. Um, because if she was involved in Freemasonry, it might explain some of the weirdness that popped up in the construction of her house, like the stairways to nowhere, which can be seen in the Rosslyn Chapel in Scotland, Freemason. Uh, but, okay, I'm getting ahead of the story. 
when um, Sarah Winchester returned from Europe, the story goes that she reportedly went to see Boston psychic Adam Coons and still overwrought with grief about the death of her baby and her husband and convinced that the family was cursed, she asked him what she could do. And the psychic told her that it was true she was cursed by the spirits of all those who had been killed by Winchester firearms that her husband's family had produced. So furthermore, to avoid suffering the same fate, Sarah would have to build a house where construction never stopped or she would soon be joining them in the afterlife. By the way, how many people had been killed by Winchester firearms, do you think? Well, my research says 14,000 Henry rifles sold during the Civil War, and the Winchester Model 1866 sold 720,000 units between the Civil War through the late 1800s. Additionally, the Winchester rifle is often referred to as the gun that won the West, it was a favorite for outlaws and sheriffs alike because it was easy to operate and care for. Its slab-sided design made both the rifle and the carbine versions ideal for a saddle scabbard. Ooh, I love all this gun terminology. <laughs> I'm not Mr. Gun Guy, but it's fun the way it tipples off the tongue. In, <laughs> in fact, the 1873 Peter was the premier choice of the post-1874 Texas Rangers, as well as a favorite of Pat Garrett, William F. Cody, Buffalo Bill, and outlaws Butch Cassidy and Billy the Kid. Now that adds up to a pretty high body count, so it's no wonder that Sarah may have felt haunted. Of course, it didn't help her case any to purchase a huge plot of land in San Jose and build a gargantuan mansion that workers could never cease labor on for 38 years. Even if there were a bunch of spirits out to get me, I am pretty sure I wouldn't be able to put up with all that construction noise 24 hours a day. Oh my goodness. No, no, no. I mean, I guess you can tune anything out. There's... Uh, uh, there's Oral fatigue, there's olfactory fatigue, but yeah. yeah I, for those things to work and for you to not notice, they have to be coming in at about the same rate. In other words, that's how white noise works. Mm -hmm, it can mm -hmm. be really loud, but it's steady. But how can hammering, hammering can never be steady. <laughs> and construction noise, holy cow, no way. All right, well... Sarah herself had no problem with the construction noise, it appears. She started with an eight-room farmhouse and eventually converted it into 161 rooms, four stories high, a behemoth. It has six kitchens, 40 bedrooms, 19 chimneys, 40 staircases, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 950 doors, three elevators, two ballrooms, and 10,000 windows. At its height, literally and figuratively, the mansion was seven stories tall and had somewhere between 500 and 600 rooms. Holy cats. Wow. Until the 1906 earthquake brought down the uppermost stories, and she wisely refrained <laughs> uh, from building any higher after that. Aside from its immense size, the house has a number of unique characteristics as well. To begin with, basically, it's a labyrinth, a home as labyrinth. 
There are many miles of twisting corridors and hallways, some of which have dead ends. There are rooms within rooms. There's a staircase that leads nowhere, abruptly halting at the ceiling. And in another place, there is a door which opens into a solid wall. Some of the home's chimneys have a ceiling overhead. In other places, there are skylights covered by a roof. In other places, there are skylights covered by additional skylights and even a skylight in the floor. Hmm. I guess that would be a floor light. Floor light, yeah. A, a, a ground light, if we're going <laughs> to hold the analogy. There's tiny doors leading into huge spaces. Large doors that lead into tiny spaces. Sounds like Alice in Wonderland. Upside down pillars can be found all about the house and in perhaps its most deadly iteration. There is a second story door that opens outward to a sheer drop to the ground below. Adding further to the mysterious features, the prime numbers 7, 11, and 13 are repeatedly displayed in different ways throughout the house. They show up consistently in the number of windows per room and the number of stairs in the staircases, posts in the railings, panels in the floors, and lights in the chandeliers. Sounds Masonic to me. Yeah, well, and she had a thing about spider webs too, right? She did. She actually designed several of the house's spider web designed leaded glass windows herself. I mean, that's incredible. I, it's it's bizarre. I mean, no doubt about it. It's definitely bizarre. But everybody has the right to design their home the way they want it. You know, I I guess my problem is how it is said that she came up with her design ideas. So can can you expound on that? I don't know if it's a myth or what it is, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, as you uh, partially referred to earlier, the legend states that Sarah, after William's death in 1881, became highly distraught, and she sought the advice of Boston medium Adam Coons. During a seance with Coons, Sarah was told that because of the many people who had been slain by the Winchester rifle, she was cursed by the Winchester fortune. Coons further instructed Sarah that the angry spirits demanded that she move to California and build them a house, a endless spirit house. Upon her arrival in California, Sarah began holding her own seances every midnight so, so that she could receive the next day's building instructions from the spirits. Her seances allegedly involved the use of a Ouija board and 13 variously colored robes, which she wore ritualistically each night within the confines of the seance room. To further appease the angry spirits, Mrs. Winchester made sure the construction of the house went on nonstop, 24-7, 365 days a year, for fear that should she stop building, she would die. But there's those who see a very different picture. Researcher Richard Allen Wagner sees the Winchester house purely as an expression of Sarah's fascination with Masonic ideals. I, I do think that's possible. I, you know, I suppose that all the spirit stuff is possible, but there are some other reasons there's, you know, other than spirit communication and potentially other than Masonic ideals or, you know, perhaps factoring into that, that could have contributed to Sarah's behavior. Such as? Well, depression did run in Sarah's family. That is documented. So it's known that she suffered fairly severely from that. Um, on top of that, she was going through a complicated bereavement process. And I say it was complicated because she continued to wear veils and dark clothing throughout her life, as well as create shrine-like areas to her deceased husband and daughter. And 
well, it's not uncommon to grieve those losses for the rest of one's life. Sarah's behavior was extreme and dramatic. She was also secretive to the point of absurdity, you know, firing staff for deigning to talk about her and inserting secret holes in doors and walls where she could spy on them. Furthermore, she believed in the occult to such an extent that her superstitions guided everything she did for the remainder of her years. So taken together, Sarah Winchester seemed to be experiencing mood symptoms, paranoia, and delusional beliefs that are somewhat indicative of a process like depression with psychotic features. Basically, she could have become so gravely depressed and so deeply entrenched in her grief that she reached out for answers by whatever means possible. And we have to remember that during the late 1800s, spiritualism was at its height in America. So it's not surprising that she turned to various mediums to try to relieve her pain. However, she continued to be haunted by the untimely deaths of her husband and daughter. And rather than thinking about those events as senseless tragedies in the midst of life, you know, something that nobody can control, she kind of clung to this idea that the Winchesters were cursed by accepting blood money for their creations. Her constant building was meant to either appease or confuse the spirits, if you, you know, believe that legend. And her only true companions during those 38 years were those spirits. So but what I find ironic about the whole thing is that Sarah, even though she had a long and accomplished life of her own, ultimately went back to her roots. So remember in the beginning when we were talking about Sarah's own father, he was a joiner and that's a man who builds things with wood. So I wonder if Sarah realized that she was kind of emulating her own father all the while she was trying to make up for the sins of her father-in-law. Ooh, very, very interesting. I find it interesting, fascinating, that most of these cases, in some ways all of these cases, have a combination of factors. There's always the psychological, and that can be teased out, and through your expertise and your training and your insight, you can spot that. There seem to be often paranormal aspects or spiritual aspects to these cases as well. You can kind of look at them from that perspective, perhaps less scientific, but also perhaps informative in its own way. And then there's the kind of the hybrid where we're seeing how psychological factors can be interpreted through the lens of the paranormal. For example, the notion that she was seeking the spirits in order to receive this information and be told what to do. And her fear of displeasing the spirits seemingly came to take over her life. What are your thoughts in terms of the psychology, the need to seek this guidance. It was certainly not unusual in that time period. As you mentioned before, it was the age of spiritualism. What are your thoughts on the psychological ramifications of someone who goes into seance mode or uses a Ouija board, communication with the spirits, in order to retrieve information on how they should conduct their lives? That is, it's always very rough for me to, to hear about that. And, and I think I'm not unlike Houdini in that way, um, because Houdini had a big problem with spiritualism during his time. And the reason that he had a big problem with it too, for that, you know, people turning to the Ouija board and to mediums was because the vast majority of these people were in grief, in bereavement of some type, you know, they had lost somebody that really meant something to them. And they 
couldn't seem to move past that. And instead of making a meaningful life on their own outside of that person, spiritualism really kept bringing them back to the initial uh, purpose of their visit. And which was to, you know, get some closure around the loss of this person. And so that's why I kind of see Sarah Winchester, if those stories are true, I do see her as kind of a tragic casualty to that movement, which is preying on the grief and bereavement of that person rather than trying to heal them and make them whole to get past it, to use it for something else. And and Sarah dedicated her whole life and considerable money to the grief. And that, that's very sad. The other side, the, the alleged potential other side, the other explanation for the house, for the ongoing building, the bizarre size, the, the endless work on it, is that it was a fulfillment of Masonic ideals. And that being that primarily of the initiate, and as we mentioned before, the labyrinth. And one goes through a series of trials and proves oneself to rise within the ranks. How much stock do you give that, that the Winchester House is in fact an expression of Masonic ideals rather than an expression of her belief that spirits were telling her and were guiding her in her building habits? Given all the mathematical you know, correlations that we're seeing to Masonry, um, to, to the Freemason Society, I think that's highly probable, actually. And when you look at Sarah Winchester's life, she went to school. She she did attend a ladies' college where Baconian ideas uh, and you know Freemasonry were highly espoused. So this was before she got married to William Winchester. And you have to remember that Sarah Winchester knew at least four languages by the time she was 12 years old. She was a, an incredibly smart person. So. I actually think that that might be very probable that after she suffered these losses, she went to Europe for three years. She came back and said, you know what? I was into this before I got married and before the loss of these people who are very dear to me. And now I am going to express those beliefs because I have the time and the money and the intellect to do so. And that would be a very different expression than listening to the clearly paranormal slash supernatural spirits who were telling her what to do. It would certainly be a more intellectual approach. Another really fascinating aspect of that era, the spiritualism era of the late 1800s, was the spirit photography. Because remember, oh, yeah. photography was a very new technique at the time. So we can see the pictures now and the supposed ectoplasm, and we see what we see is real, real obvious in, to our level of sophistication in terms of double exposures and that kind of thing. She's cloth. Yes. <laughs> but at the time, I mean, people were just flabbergasted. And they said, this is photography. It's real. It's a snapshot. It's an image of what's going on at the time. How could it be falsified? They didn't even know. And that went a long way. Ironically, a belief in technology furthered the cause of the supernatural. Well, and, and regardless, though, if you're talking about Freemasonry and their, you know, the, the belief of a mathematical truth to the universe and, you know, the Fibonacci sequence being in, you know, the, the golden ratio being in everything and, and you know, these numbers, it's there is almost a spiritual bent to that, too. So I wouldn't doubt that she was into both, just maybe not the way people are thinking. Yes, I tend to think of, of the Masonic and Rosicrucian approach as, 
that's more of a mysticism uh, uh, as, as opposed to a, a paranormal or supernatural approach. And while uh, all forms of Masons do require uh, or, or do espouse a belief in a supreme being, they're very careful not to pin it down to a given religion. So I think they're trying very hard to keep it on the other side of supernatural beliefs and keep it to the mystical, more like, say, a Sufi or the Kabbalah, rather than flat-out belief in the supernatural and in ghosts. Well, I don't know. It's fascinating. I think there's a lot of people out there who are drawn to both, drawn in both directions. And I think perhaps if they're more intellectual and have a, a strong education, they would be more inclined toward the mystical side of it, toward the intellectual side of it, rather than the supernatural side of it. But I think a lot of people probably require something inside them, requires both. And perhaps Sarah Winchester was one of those people. She certainly left a fascinating legacy. Well, The Lineup Podcast is a joint production of The Lineup, America's Most Haunted, and The Criminal Code. They're available at www.the-line-up.com, americas-most-haunted.com, thecriminalcode.com, our theme music is composed and performed by Absofacto. Listen in at absofacto.com. Shut in in theaters tomorrow. You hear about the storm coming in? You probably shouldn't be up there all alone. My son, he's sick. I can't really move him. Hello? The only thing scarier than being alone. I keep hearing sounds, and it's not just in my head. Is realizing. You're talking about ghosts. You are not. I have to get out of here. Naomi Watts. Run! Run! Shut in. Rated PG-13. Maybe inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters tomorrow.